Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And it is that special time of year, maybe kind of sort of for some of you. It is December. This is our December episode, and uh, it's it's our five-year anniversary. Oh, yeah. What did you get me? Oh, shit. What's what's five? What are we supposed to do? Is that like paper? Um, I think it's like graveyard soil. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I always feel that this is kind of a special episode, not only because it's a fac anniversary, but it's also Christmas time or holiday time. And I, I feel more and more that I'm one of the few people who really loves Christmas. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I like it less every year, and I feel like every year it's kind of less taboo to be public about my dislike of it. And every year I'm surrounded by people like you, and and there are lots of other people out there who just cannot deal with Christmas. It just makes me more like, Christmas is a wonderful time, and I'll make it super magical for everyone. That's nice. So, you know, we're going to try. We're going to see what we can do over this episode, but... Needless to say, around this time of year, we've picked films in the past that have explicitly dealt with Christmas. We've chosen films that have not dealt with Christmas, but kind of dealt with some kind of aspect of it that Mm -hmm. we felt related to our concept of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And this year is no exception. This year, we picked the Swedish film Let the Right One In from 2008. And it is snowy. It's beautiful. It's bleak. It's heartwarming. It's terrifying. It's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. And looking back on it, I mean, I I knew I loved this film. I knew I loved it. I'd seen it a couple of times. But every time I watch it, and we'll get into this, every time I watch it, not only do I pick something new out of it, I feel like we say that about movies a lot, but I read it completely differently. The same stuff, but different things jump out at me. And it affects the overall tone of it. And in doing research on this and getting into the book, getting into the remake, there's just so many layers to this film. So I think it's a great one to cover in December. And this is a film that holds a really special place in my heart. I saw it maybe a year or so after it came out. It was actually one of the last DVDs I remember renting at Blockbuster. Blockbuster? Blockbuster. This is when I was living in Montreal. And this was just, you know, to be totally honest, like the darkest time of my life. Really? That I can say. And I put on this movie. I was totally by myself. And even though it's a dark kind of messed up movie in so many ways it took me out of my own pain and suffering and Mm. what I was going through at the time and I've just always held this film in in such high regard and it's held such a special place in my film lover heart that um, it was really interesting to go back and, and actually start to kind of piece it out a little bit and understand why things work and and why these characters need each other and um yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I feel like it's a film that there's a lot going on. It's it's perfect for the faculty of horror because of so many layers and so many themes and it's so subtle with all these layers and themes. Everything is implied in this film and there's a lot of speculating you have to do. There's a lot of questions you have to answer and blanks you have to fill in for yourself. I don't remember the exact circumstances that I first saw the film, but yeah, like I said, every time I see it, I pull out something different, and this time was no exception. I know the first time I saw it, I had dark fairy tale, Guillermo del Toro. This is a really interesting, unique shade of child love that we're looking at, and so I I got 
a lot of warm and fuzzies about it. The next time I watched it, I was like, this is terrifying and grim. This is a story of a predator who has ensnared somebody who is going to be bound to a life of violence and servitude. And it was a very dark and harrowing film for me. And now it kind of resides somewhere in between. And I really love that about the film. So without further ado, let's talk about 2008's Thomas Alfredson directed Let the Right One In. Vill du bli ihop med mig? In a suburb of Stockholm in 1981, 12-year-old Oscar encounters his mysterious new neighbor, Ellie, who is also 12-ish. They form an intimate, if odd, relationship, and Oscar is consistently bullied at school, and Ellie encourages him to strike back. Oscar knows something is different about Ellie, but it is not until we, the audience, see her murder and attack adults after her older companion fails to kill for her that it becomes clear she is a vampire. Her companion, Hokan, is caught as he is about to murder a young man and attempts to kill himself using acid, but later dies at the hospital after Ellie visits him and he throws himself out the window. While on an ice skating field trip, Oscar strikes back at the bullies, and he proudly tells Ellie and suggests that they form a blood pack. After he cuts his hand, Ellie's vampiric nature is revealed. Ellie attacks one of the women in the neighborhood, Virginia, but Virginia survives and is turned into a vampire. Realizing this, Virginia kills herself by asking the blinds to be raised when she is admitted to the hospital and the sunlight causes her to burst into flames. When Oscar confronts Ellie, she says they share the same bloodless. Locke, Virginia's boyfriend and friend to the other victim, tracks Ellie down and attempts to kill her, but Oscar saves her, waking her up and allowing Ellie to kill Locke. Ellie fears it is no longer safe for her to stay, and she leaves that night. The next day, Oscar is lured by bullies to an after-school fitness program where they attempt to drown him, but Ellie returns and murders them all rather brutally. The final scene shows Oscar on a train in the daytime with a large box which contains Ellie. They ride off into an unknown future. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. But there's also a lot of other stuff going on in this movie. I meant to ask you before, but did you know it was a vampire film going into it? Yes, I did. Because I don't think I did. I think that was something that I had to kind of 
glean throughout with Oscar. Whereas now when I look at the DVD cover, it's like one of the decade's best vampire films, one of the best vampire films ever. There was a quote by Guillermo del Toro on the cover addressing it as a vampire film. So I, I look forward to hearing from the listeners if you guys knew it was a vampire film or if that's something that was revealed to you the way it was to me, the way it was to Oscar throughout the course of this film. Yeah, it definitely was something that I remember reading about, uh, like Swedish vampire movie. Mm-hmm. That that was really prominent to me, and I was just like, and this was you know a couple of years before I got into like horror proper as um, a contributor and a writer. So I was just trying to watch all the stuff I could. That's why I remember getting it a blockbuster because I was so excited they had it. So funny! But I'm amazed that they had it actually. I know, I know right? How mainstream this film is. I think it was like they had one or two copies. It wasn't like a whole shelf of them. Right, right. If anyone else remembers that kind of shelf scenario. Yeah. But I think before we get too much more into the conversation, we should talk about a scene which we need to talk about. And it's one that I didn't mention in the synopsis because it's so in passing. It is. It's really brief. That I feel like it doesn't hold a lot of weight to the overall outcome of the film. And I think for me, that's intentional. But it's the kind of scene where every time I've watched it, and I've seen this movie probably four, maybe five times, mm-hmm. I always forget it's in there. Mm-hmm. And then it pops up and I'm like, oh, right. Okay, moving on. And that is the scene when Ellie is changing her clothes and uh, Oscar catches a glimpse of her, and you see there's actually quite an angry scar across her genitals. And no one ever mentions it again. It's never brought up. It's never explained. It's no. just there. It's mm-hmm. just there for a flash. Mm-hmm. And as I was going to analyze this film, that was one of the things that I was like, I really need to piece this out. I need to figure out where this sits. Right. Because... Anything in this film, as Andrea was saying, it doesn't say a lot, but to include that moment says something. For sure. And so I went back and I did some research. And Let the Right One In is based on a novel, mm-hmm. which was huge. And it was released a few years before. And um, it actually has to kind of do with the whole story. And it actually altered a lot of the ways that I thought about the story. And I don't think the novel deals with this scenario in maybe the best way. But essentially, the backstory to the genital scar is that Ellie was turned into a vampire about 200 years prior to the events of the film. And the vampire who turned Ellie removed their genitals and feasted on the wound. And that inferred that Ellie, when she was human, was genetically male. And the novel at that point begins to switch pronouns. So it moves from referring to her as a she to a he. Right. And I think... You know, as anyone who is socially aware or inclined knows how immensely problematic that is. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to even bring it up, but I think we need to for the sake of context and the conversation around this film. Now, for me moving forward, Andrew and I talked a little bit about this off air. How would we refer to Ellie? What makes sense? Because there is a line in the film where she says, I'm not actually a girl. And kind of in the context of this big epic vampire story, you're like, oh, well, I just mean she's like not a mortal girl, right? right? That's how I always read it. Mm -hmm. And some people have argued that you can take that to mean that she was revealing a gender identity or something like that. And I think it just gets into a place that this film didn't necessarily want to go. I think by including that shot 
which is very important. It enters in an element of queerness. It enters in an aspect of non-binary gender, mm-hmm. all of things which are almost never, ever dealt with in larger films. And I think where this film succeeds is it doesn't make a huge deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Oscar cares for Ellie no matter what Ellie is. And we as an audience or I certainly do. I care about Ellie, no matter what gender, where she is, where that falls. And so for me, I feel like the film genders her as female. And so that is, I think, the pronoun we should use moving forward. But I, I'm not sure. I'm also inclined to refer to Ellie as a little girl because I do feel that that's the way the film codes her. Um, it makes it a complex issue for sure. But uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I think we'll go ahead using her and she and I hope you guys are okay with that. Yeah. And if you're not, feel free to write us and tell us why. Yeah. That's okay. We can, you know, we're learning. We are, you know, cis, white, heterosexual females. And as engaged as we are and as you try to be, these kind of things open up a bigger discussion. But again, as I was saying, this addition to the film, it means something, but it doesn't define who Ellie is. Well, it's, it's funny that you should say that because insofar as that's just a really passing little blip in the film, and as you say, the film doesn't dwell on it, I found myself dwelling on it. I found that to be a very salient point to the film. And in fact, upon my rewatch last week, when that scene happened, the scar was a fair bit less gnarly than I remembered it to be. So the first time I saw the film, that shot had such an impact that in my mind, it was like a huge gnarly scar. And then the next time I saw it, it wasn't that crazy. And I was like, huh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that that struck me so much? And it kind of forced me to to look back and examine why that was such a big deal to me. And what I came up with is that my initial reading of Ellie's castration was that it was one of necessity. And this was having no knowledge of the book, only having the film as reference material. But I deduced that... For her to be coded as a helpless child in distress, the kind that would ensnare Locke, for example. Am I saying that right? Yeah. It's culturally easier to pull off a helpless little girl than it is a boy. Because we're conditioned to view girls as weaker, unthreatening, and more vulnerable. And by extension, when we look at the grander story of this film, which we'll get into shortly, which is that of her recruiting a new familiar to take care of her, being coded as female might also assist her in finding a familiar for the exact same reasons. So that was my initial reading and one that likely reveals a lot of my own preoccupations with gender and whatever, because I don't know, I'm a female and that comes with a lot of shit. But you're saying that the castration occurred after becoming a vampire. Or it was part of her becoming a vampire. The vampire who turned her, what I have from the research I did online, removed Ellie's genitals and feasted on the wound. And that was part of Ellie turning into a vampire. Yeah. So... Yeah, there there could have been other stuff. Again, I haven't read the novel, so apologies no. for that. But, you know, it also kind of read to me as an interesting analog to, I think, the sexuality that you feel when you're 12. Oscar obviously admits he's 12, and Ellie says she's 12 or thereabouts. Give uh, or take. Give or take. A couple hundo years. <laughs> and, you know, 12 is such an interesting age 
sexually speaking because mm. uh, you know we're not meant when we're 12 to be sexually active but mm-hmm. i think that's kind of the age when you're like noticing the kind of people that you're attracted to if you are attracted to people and you know figuring out your inclinations and maybe getting some of those feelings down there and your body is changing and doing all these kind of things that are slightly out of your control but you don't have the channels or the opportunities necessarily to act on them or, mm-hmm. or we're not meant to. Right. That's supposed to come a few years down the line. Yeah. And so the castration aspect, again, as you were saying, it codes Ellie as this kind of attractive but unsexual being mm-hmm. in this world. And I think the, as you were saying, the gnarliness of the scar, which always kind of gets me, it's such a searing point of the kind of emotional castration we force on young women mm-hmm. that you can't be sexual as we've talked about you have to guard your sexuality you have to be aware that boys will be more sexual than you and you have to manage all of these things and the other thing that that reveal kind of drives home is that she does not have the equipment for a conventional heterosexual relationship with Oscar. It's not like they're going to grow up and act as man and wife. That's not going to happen. That's off the table. And for Oscar to glimpse that, short of Ellie admitting it, you know, she says, I'm not a girl, but she doesn't say, I'm not, not a girl. Yeah. I don't remember 12. I don't remember if I had any sexual feelings or anything at age 12. I do not. I feel like Oscar is a little kid, and I feel like it's really evidenced when he's talking to her about going steady. Neither of them can even really define that. They don't know what it means, but they know that it's something that a boy and girl do and their boyfriend and girlfriend, and there's other stuff intertwined with that. But when I'm watching them take the train together and I'm just like, he knows what he's in for. But at the same time, he doesn't quite know because he doesn't have puberty yet. If we can assume that he's in for a similar fate as Hokan, where he is going to just grow old in servitude to this perpetual child girl, never having experienced a real sexually intimate relationship, it's pretty sad. And I think, you know, this would be a good time to talk about Hokan right now because the person who I watched this movie with was like, Oh, what do you think the ending kind of meant? And I, I said, Oh, I, I, for me, how I've always read the ending of this film was that Ellie has found a new kind of familiar Renfield-esque character. Right. And Hogan had kind of aged out of that role. That's right. He'd so become that, inept. He was starting to fuck up. He was getting sloppy. He was getting needy. 100%. Exact same reading. So I read it as it was just a movement to another stage. And then I, again, read about this super fun book. So Hawken was a pedophile. Yeah. Yeah. Just a just big old pedophile. And um, he, you know, is, you know, sexually attracted to Ellie. Uh, at one point, he actually survives the fall from the hospital after Ellie's bitten him. So he's actually turned into a vampire, but his face is all burned off. So he becomes this odd faceless monster like haunting the woods near the hospital and actually attacks Ellie at one point and it's this kind of really disturbing narrative for a character who has so much sympathy and you know almost an odd humor to him oh for sure in the film you have tremendous sympathy for him especially when you witness his ultimate sacrifice where he's like fuck i'm caught the only way i can protect ellie is to burn off my face with fucking acid and he does it and then when she visits him in the hospital he presents the 
ultimate sacrifice. He reveals his neck for her to drink, and then he just kind of drops to his death. So he's very tragic. I, I find it so poignant that that scene, barely any words transpire between them. It's just understood that this is the end. Bye. You know, she doesn't say thanks, I love you forever. And that kind of makes more sense now, knowing the backdrop that he was a pedophile. And in addition to him being a pedophile, he was, I believe, I haven't read the book either, but he was a school teacher who was outed as a pedophile. So he lost his job. He lost his family. He was shamed for him becoming her familiar and giving his life over to keeping her alive wasn't as big a sacrifice as it is to someone like Oscar, who is 12 years old and innocent and pretty sweet, at least so we see in the movie, because the book paints a different picture of Oscar as well. Yeah, I mean, Oscar in the book is, is, you have a sense of it when, um, very early on in the film when Oscar is in class and he kind of identifies, you know, how the police would have known this person was murdered. There was no smoke in the lungs of the person who died. That's correct. Did you figure that out right now? No, I read a lot. So we have a sense that he's just maybe a little bit interested in the macabre. And who of us listening to this podcast or doing this podcast was not the same way? Well, yeah, he's into true crime. Yeah, that's super hot right now. And I I think that it's this kind of relatable monster kid-esque thing about him. In the book, it's quite different. He's very aggressive his fantasies which you go into of him murdering the bullies is is really quite grotesque mm-hmm. and, and very well realized mm-hmm. from what i understand the tensions between him and his parents are more pronounced he has some compulsions to do with eating to the point that he's actually overweight which makes the whole piggy taunting with the bullies make a little bit more sense He's a pants wetter. He's a shoplifter. He's more of a troubled little boy. And according to the author, he explained that this was partially to lessen Ellie's monstrosity as a vampire. She's actually one of the more sympathetic players in the book because, you know, pedophiles are coded as monsters. And Oscar's got the beginnings of Jeffrey Dahmer written all over him. It makes Ellie not seem quite so sinister. Yeah, because we have the hint that they have something in common. There is the desire to hit back when Ellie suggests it to him. You can see him kind of taking that on. And then he's so proud to share that with Mm -hmm. her when he when he does strike back. You feel that kind of kinship to them that Mm -hmm. there is a sort of even before he knows she's a vampire, there is a kind of inevitability of them sharing the same kind of mindset and and the kind of sense that if we take Hoken for what we know in the film, and I think that's how we have to kind of frame this discussion is, yes, we have extra text to inform our readings of this film. The film doesn't necessarily omit things. It just doesn't explain them. Right. And so I think that leads into many interpretations. And this book was quite a big deal, especially in Sweden. And so obviously for fans of the book, it does a lot of fan service, but it also just lets us interpret things. And Mm so we're not in the mindset of this, you know, kid who's just all about like cutting off the lips of his bullies. He's, you know, a kid who is bullied and he wants to strike back and he's maybe not sure how. And I don't think there's a lot that's super unrelatable about that. No. 
No, not at all. Even a hundred thousand year old vampire is able to relate on a level that Oscar's own mother can't. You know, there's a scene where he's got a big scratch on his face and his mom's like, what happened? And he's like, oh, something happened at recess. I fell down during recess. I tripped on a rock. Oh, honey. You've got to watch your step, okay? But Ellie gets it right away, and she gets it because partially because she heard him fantasizing and ideating about, oh, you're a little piggy, I'll fuck you up. Like, that was kind of an indication to her, but she got it right away, and right away was like, you need to fight back. Oscar, listen. Mm. Hit back. Mm. You never hit back. Have you? Mm -mm. So do it. Hit back. Hard. I don't necessarily think that that's part of Ellie's personal loneliness and trajectory. I mean, her entire existence is violence and fighting back. And indeed, it's it's attacking. It's attacking the innocent and preying off them. But but just the idea of of her first and you have to look out for yourself and we can look out for each other, which was so appealing to a boy like Oscar in his position. That part is kind of lovely. There's lovely stuff in here amidst really dark shit. Well, yeah, I think this feels like an adult film in so many ways because People can find each other in darkness. Mm -hmm. It's not just like Sonny Nora Ephron comedies all the time. It's yeah. not when Harry met Sally all of the time. There, uh, you know, there's terrible dark things that happen in all of our lives. And that doesn't mean that good things don't come out of it or you don't support people and find people. So it's it feels like a lot more ambitious through this film. And for me, it's just as testament to the kind of purity of understanding a person's desires mm -hmm. being truly empathetic you know ellie even says that at one point when oscar is reacting to her being a vampire she asks him to be her for a little bit and he has to step up and he does uh -huh. yeah i also noticed that throughout the film ellie doesn't she shows she doesn't tell so when he offers her candy for example and at first she's like no and then he's like oh that's kind of weird. She doesn't say, ah, I can't. I'll barf. There are so many ways she could have verbally gotten out of that, but she showed him. She ate it. She was sick. The same when we've got the pivotal scene that essentially names the film, as far as I'm concerned, is when she wants to come in and Oscar kind of toys with her. Like, uh, is there an invisible barrier here? What, you can't just walk in? So she does walk in and starts to bleed profusely. Like she puts herself up to that kind of torment just to show him as if her words aren't enough, you know, just because she is a supernatural being. So I think there's tremendous honesty in that. There's a really childlike, like, let me show you. Let me prove it if I can't explain it, which is quite lovely as well. So the film doesn't make a big to-do of its setting in terms of time period. There is a kind of lack of technology. There's uh, some really great knitwear, though I, I think that's just a great thing to have in any horror film. <laughs> really, really solid knitwear. Everyone does. Everyone, Everyone does in this film. 
I think what's interesting about all of the knitwear, it really adds to the kind of cold feeling of Sweden and any Scandinavian country. It actually reminded me a lot of when I was studying in both my undergrad and then my master's, one of the major playwrights you have to talk about when you're studying theater is a playwright by the name of Henrik Ibsen. And uh, he was actually Norwegian, but still kind of part of that Scandinavian crew. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he wrote some of the most important plays of the turn of the century. A Doll's House is is hugely important to theater. It has a lot to do with feminism. So if anyone knows what I'm talking about, I, I hope you're nodding your head with me on public transit. But all that to say, Ibsen always had a preoccupation with the lack of sunlight, with the kind of bizarre ties that people form when it gets really dark out. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written some, you know, really beautiful, tragic characters, and they kind of start to die as the light fades from them. It becomes a huge metaphor. So when I think of Scandinavian countries, I often think of the lack of light. And I know Scandinavian countries are talked about a lot in popular culture, political culture as having, you know, the best schools. Mm -hmm. They have great health care. They're doing all these things. And yes, they pay all these taxes, but look at the quality of life. Yeah, very progressive. Super progressive. I think that's also reflected in the fact that our podcast is very well received Sweden, when we started getting big, I think we were both astonished at how many people on Twitter were tweeting at us in Swedish. And I think we appeared in a newspaper or something. Someone sent us a clipping. So hello, Swedish listeners. Hello, Swedish listeners. This one's for you. Let's talk about where Sweden was at, where the film is actually set in, which is 1981, as I mentioned in the synopsis. Now, This period was actually, for Sweden, a state of economic decline. There were huge tax burdens on the population, and there was the tensions of the Cold War. So if we think of the Cold War as, you know, Russia versus the U.S., well, Sweden is kind of right in the middle of it. Sweden is also very well known for being the neutral country during World War II. So there's lots of strange anti-politic going on within the country that I'm not super familiar with. But for the context of this film, the the novel actually gets a bit more into an actual historical event, which happened in 1981, which is when a Russian nuclear sub ran aground on a coast of Sweden. So it was like, yes, there is a Cold War. And so nothing was happening officially. But in the middle of all this, Sweden had a nuclear sub on its doorstep. Yeah. And that raises a lot of tensions that makes for a lot of anxiety. And for me, when I watched this film and the kind of anonymity of this neighborhood, this suburb, it feels so prevalent. Even the kind of hard concrete of this, I don't know, housing apartment complex that Mm -hmm. Ellie and Oscar both occupy, it feels like it could be almost anywhere at this time. So I think when you talk about kind of the tax burden and all of this kind of economic depression, and and Sweden would bounce back, you know, a few years later, and they kind of had this, the glory days of the late 80s, kind of mimicking a yuppie culture that we had in North America. But there is a sense of the adults. And I think it's important to talk about the adults in this film. So we've already kind of mentioned a few of them. But there is this group of friends like Virginia and Yake, and these people who just kind of hang out, and they're slowly being picked off through Ellie. She's not intentionally targeting this group of friends. They're just kind of out and about and wandering around. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of the quote-unquote dead adult society that they're not 
doing a whole bunch. They're not necessarily contributing. They don't have any kind of grand ideas of how they're going to change the world or the connections that mean something to mm-hmm. them. They're kind of going through these motions, this uh, group of friends who come in and out of the film. There's a sense that they are so pulled apart from this community. It's not like they have a bar they all go to. They like hang out in like their local cafe Chinese shop. Mm-hmm. Even the one friend, when Virginia goes to the apartment, he's just surrounded by his cats, yeah. and he's scared. So there is this kind of oppressiveness that the adults can't come out of. And I always thought the decision that Virginia makes to essentially commit suicide was so harrowing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's harrowing in the fact that it's, for me, visually, the first thing I think about when I think of this film it's not just she bursts into flames. It's she bursts into flames and the flames engulf that yeah, room. the room goes up. And it, it's so harrowing. And you see Yake, who cares about her, just he wasn't able to properly communicate it before. And then watching his girlfriend just disintegrate is confusing and strange and weird. And so that kind of makes the partnership or the relationship that Ellie and Oscar has all the more radical. That's right. Because they're not succumbing to this. They're actively trying to find that connection between the two Mm -hmm. of them. Even though they stumble, even though they fail, they've found some kind of likeness in each other. Right. Even when Ellie first meets Oscar, it's, you know, she plays with the Rubik's Cube and then leaves it for him. There's a sense of not giving up between the two of them, which I think within the scope of this world and, you know, what I talked a little bit about with Ibsen, is pretty profound. It gives you the sense of hope so that when they're leaving at the end of the film to this kind of unknown destination, they're just going somewhere, that feels like a happy ending because Mm -hmm. they're not going to be dragged down by the society. That's an interesting point. In the film, Virginia's plight is fairly harrowing, as Alex just said. You get the sense that she has an indication that what is happening to her is vampirism. She never really says it outright, but all the clues that she gathers leads her to believe that she can commit suicide by this sunlight. So that's a big kind of reveal. But there are deleted scenes in the film that involve her discovering her sensitivity to sunlight. And in the book, it was further explained that she drinks some of her own blood. So she really comes to grips with this. And in the film, her husband is quite cruel to her leading up to the moment where it happens. And even when he's visiting her in the hotel room, he's talking about himself. He's talking about other things. He's rambling on. And I I think that was really significant to show that the most conventional partnerships can be very isolating, which makes the intensity of Ellie and Oscar's relationship that much more poignant. I also found it really interesting how there's a courtyard in this housing unit, and you get the impression that maybe it's kind of a low-income, working-class housing unit. Oscar is always the only boy hanging out there. He is hanging out by himself in a snowed-over jungle gym. What do you call those? I call it jungle gym. Okay. A snowed-over jungle gym, and that becomes their de facto meeting place. And when Oscar tells his mother, I'm going out, she's concerned because there's a rash of murders in an otherwise sleepy town, but she believes that he's safe there, and that's where he's coming face-to-face with the killer. And I think Oscar's mother is kind of an interesting, almost absentee figure, because just as you mentioned, Andrea, her just being like, okay, just stick to the courtyard. Like, what does she think he's going to do? Right. What could a boy on his own possibly do? Yeah. 
in that small space. And he's just kind of, you know, riffing, stabbing a tree. It's all that kind of festering anxiety and the mentality that he has is just being mirrored back to him and, and becoming increasingly intensified. Mm-hmm. And for me, the most tragic scene with his mother is when he's like, I'm going out. See you later. And she's like, you don't want to watch this TV program? Yeah, we always watch this together. Where are you going? It's that kind of sedation where it becomes really clear that there is so little in this community, in this world, in this life, that there's not a lot of reason to stop him from pursuing Ellie or or whatever that relationship is. Yeah, their relationship is interesting because you get the sense that she does care about him, but she can't relate to him. She can't reach him. He can't talk to her about his bullying and stuff. And I thought that scene where they're brushing their teeth and they're both kind of like fucking around and making eye contact, they're playing, but they're not speaking. They're communicating, but it's silent. And I thought that was really interesting. And then uh, let's talk about Oscar's dad, who kind of floats in and out of this narrative in a really interesting way. Now, I think we've talked on the podcast before that single parent families appear in horror a lot. That's kind of an anxiety that... Single parent households produce troubled children and children grow up with anxieties and psychoses about not having a father figure or what have you. In the film, Oscar does visit his father a couple of times and every single time he does, it's total fun and games. They are playing together in a way that he never engages with his mom on that level. They're out skidooing, they're playing games, they're laughing, they're having fun. And then there's that scene where his dad has a guest. And I think, again, looking at the film as just the film, there are some different connotations you could take from it. Yes, there's alcohol at the table, but also the entrance of another man and Oscar's father's attention deviating from Oscar to this other person. So there's a few things that kind of are at play. And then you just cut to Oscar just Hitchhiking home. Hitchhiking home, and his mother scolds him about it. I was worried sick. Where have you been? Because he goes and hangs out with Ellie afterward. But we don't really hear from his dad after that. There's a phone call, but then that's kind of it. And in the end, when Oscar is taking off with Ellie, he really has no qualms with leaving his parents behind. I'm fine. They're going to be fine. Did you pick up on the visit of that other man with his dad? The film took pains to show his sandals. Mm-hmm. And I saw a little bit of speculation online of people being like, the significance of the sandals is it's very casual. This is someone who comes over a lot. This is someone who maybe stays over a lot. There was an implication of homosexuality in that. What did you get from that? I think just looking at the film, I definitely kind of veered more towards that reading of mm-hmm. it, that there was some kind of... I don't know, not necessarily homophobia, but Oscar's jealousy, like, oh, he finally had his dad to himself. And then someone else showed up and, oh, he didn't actually get to spend time with his dad in the way he wanted to. Not at all. His dad totally shut off and was just kind of like, we have a guest now, so I'm bringing out the glasses and we go and drink. And in the book, again, just to kind of tie it back to this other source text that elaborates on something like that, it's it talked about in the book that Oscar's father is actually an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and that when he drinks, he becomes something like the monster. Mm -hmm. And Oscar is scared. He doesn't like it, as, as any child is wont to do. So in the book, it becomes more clear that it's him leaving an alcoholic rather than this kind of ambiguous relationship situation Involving alcohol. Mm -hmm. 
And again, to me, it was just that it kind of reads, no matter how you interpret it, that he is so lonely. Yeah. He is so painfully, clearly lonely that to have had those kind of moments with his father and then end with him not being the center of attention or not respecting the time they have together, Mm -hmm. uh, that becomes the painful thing. That's right. And there's a really sad, telling moment when, you know, he's spending the day at his father's and Oscar takes one of his father's sweaters, again, this terrific knitwear all throughout the film, (laughs) and smells it. Yeah. Just remembering his father and that he's so happy to be there in the sense that he doesn't actually get this time very much. That's right. And it also serves to inform that Oscar doesn't have the archetypal idea of this is husband and wife, this is mom and dad, this is a conventional adult relationship. He doesn't have that in his life. And so what Ellie's offering him is terribly unconventional, very, very risky to him, but he doesn't care because it's the kind of bond that he's so desperate for. It's a cure to the loneliness that's plaguing him. And I think the way the film shows those elements, the kind of ambiguity with both his mother and his father, speaks to not necessarily pinpointing what Oscar doesn't like about either of his parents, but that he is not acknowledged by them in the way he wants to be. And his parents' own needs and desires kind of outweighing his own. And again, as you know, this kind of age that I've talked about already on this podcast, but 12 years old, that's, you know, you're really starting to want your independence, desire your independence, maybe fight for it. But sometimes you you still need to be a kid and you need to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one more adult in the mix that we haven't really mentioned, and I don't think he's super significant, except for the fact that his male teacher, I think it's his phys ed teacher who kind of pops in and out of the school, but they take a field trip to an outdoor skating rink at some point, which is where a corpse is discovered. And it's also where Oscar confronts his bully for the first time. And both those events happen at the same time, which is magnificent, not contrast. What's the opposite of contrast? Compliment, let's say. Anyway, it struck a chord with me because growing up in Ottawa, our field trips would often be to the Rideau Canal in Ottawa, going to Winterlude, like these outdoor winter sports are just like, well, we're fucking stuck in this snowy hell for six months of the year, may as well do something constructive with it. But that teacher is so out to lunch and even when Oscar joins this like weightlifting club, which, you know, when a social outcast is coming to a teacher and being like, I want to be strong, that is a sign that something is up. And this teacher is totally out to lunch. He's reading a magazine while Oscar's trying to work out. And indeed, he is manipulated to the point that he leaves Oscar alone with the bullies in the climax of the film, which is what enables that final showdown to happen. Yeah. And I think to go back to Hogan for a minute, He presents a really interesting view into violence within this film. So early on in the film, we're still kind of figuring out what's going on, who's who, what's what. And Hoken goes off for his first kill. And he easily picks off a guy on the street uh, or on this snowy bank because, you know, Sweden has some streets, but also a lot of snowy banks, apparently. (laughs) And... He ties up this guy and he slits his throat to drain all his blood, presumably to bring back to Ellie, and he fucks it up. 
of course, because a dog comes along. So as we were mentioning, who's incompetent. But what I thought was so interesting about the way Alfredson shot this scene was that Hoken's back actually covers so much of the violence. Mm -hmm. So you just see the arm kind of move, the twitching of the body from hanging up, the sounds, Mm -hmm. the gurgling, the blood trickling. So it's this kind of sensory exercise outside of the kind of normal titillation of, I'm going to string up this guy and cut his throat. Right. The way in which he dispatches his victims in both instances in the film where Hoken is involved with it, it's almost a very clinical slaughterhouse way to extract blood from somebody. He's got a way to subdue them and make them unconscious. I don't know, whatever the fuck that chemical is. And then he hangs them upside down and slits their throat. And then he's got funnels so that he can contain as much. Like So he's almost got it down to an art where it is as nonviolent as it could be. But even then, he fucks it up. And I don't know if it's a process of his age. Like We don't know how old he was when he came upon Ellie, how long he's been at this game, but he just can't do it anymore. No, he just keeps messing up. And, you know, again, the scene that we've kind of mentioned when he pours the acid on himself Ugh. is it, it's fucking awful. It's so awful because, you know, they set up that, oh, the thing in this bottle is acid. Yeah, and- they show it playing out on a jacket, right? Just in case mm-hmm. we're not sure. I love how subtle this film and is. And then you see him kind of fingering the bottle and then pouring it over his head and then it just cuts. Yeah. And then eventually it cuts kind of back to Hogan in the hospital and you're like, oh, okay, he survived. And, you know, he's talking to Ellie who visits him at the window and um, he obviously can't talk so he can't invite her in. And, you know, we're, we're kind of insinuating all of these things of these two, whether they're friends, whether they were in love, whether it was a horrible pedophile vampiric relationship, whatever it was, mm-hmm. they are saying goodbye to each other. Mm-hmm. And it is not until... I believe, I'm I'm just recalling this now, but it's not until he's kind of at the window and he falls and all this stuff is happening that you see the acid burn side of his face. Right. So again, it's the removing of the violence of the trauma until we needed to see it, Mm -hmm. until we needed to understand the extent of what Hoken had been through. Mm -hmm. I think it was in... The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan Batman film, when uh, Aaron Eckhart as Two-Face has the kind of reveal and he's all like CGI and just like, ah, I'm Two-Face. Don't kill Maggie Gyllenhaal or something. I don't know. And so that, which is kind of this almost like over-the-top comic book-esque beat, uh, that's the only thing I can parallel it to in my mind. But the sad intimacy of this face, which is just gone. Mm -hmm. You see how little the adults have to live for in this film right it's it's tragic and even ellie's face when his body drops down like it drops so unceremoniously it's flopping it bangs off a railing and she watches it with a certain measure of sadness but also a certain measure of resigned acceptance and again like it's it's so tragic that it begs the question of how many familiars has she seen fall how disposable human beings must be to her, even the ones that she cares about. They're mortal. They're finite. Yeah. And I think a lot of other vampire films kind of ruminate on this. And, you know, even Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the television show, there's a lot of anxiety around Buffy and Angel and how much can they be together and all of this stuff. And so to just see the kind of cruelness of it, you know, the other parallel I drew to Ellie was Kristen Dunst 
in uh, Interview with a Vampire. Yes, I am so glad you brought her up because I was thinking about that once again with regard to Ellie's castration. Within traditional vampire lore, vampires are really seductive by nature, and they've either they've learned to be seductive from years of practice and necessity, or it's baked into their condition. And that's something that we see in Interview with the Vampire, where this little girl who was, you know, starving and poor and dirty, her transformation into a vampire clears her skin, puts color in her cheeks, renders her hair into beautiful little ringlets. It implies that becoming breathtakingly beautiful is part and parcel of the vampire condition. Like some predators in nature evolve claws and horns and night vision in order to get their prey, and others develop camouflage to be able to hide, and others develop these enticement measures such that their prey comes to them, like anglerfish or pitcher plants or something. So again, that was part of my reading of Ellie's castration and the idea of it benefiting her to present as female. Yeah, I, I certainly it's been a few years since I've seen Interview the Vampire, but the kind of anxiety that I believe her name is Claudia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The anxiety that she exudes about not being able to be a woman, about being sexual and feeling sexual yeah. as she ages, but never being able to act on it because it is socially reprehensible. Totally. And let the right one in. Um, the book definitely seems to play with that. But there is, again, we've, we've kind of mentioned this word a few times, this resignment that Ellie has about inhabiting her body and surviving. And she doesn't seem angry. She doesn't seem forlorn about it. She definitely doesn't seem like she's giving up. No. She's just moving from one thing to the next thing. And there's something really empowering about that. Sure. You know, she's not defined by any kind of sexuality, by any kind of relationship. She's moving through this world on her own, and she's not sad about it. She's not upset about it, at least in an overt way that she shows. No, we don't get a whole lot of insight into how she feels about her vampirism. She's resigned to it, like you said. Like, it is what it is. But I think the closest thing we could come to gleaning her feelings about it or any philosophy behind it is the fact that regardless of how she felt about Hokan, she is aware that her condition is contagious. She could have another vampire companion easily if she wanted to. She never really presents that as an option to Oscar. It's like, hey, you want to be a kid vampire with me? We'll be immortal. We can play with Rubik's Cubes forever and ever and ever. But that's not really going to work out because she kind of needs someone who can walk in the daylight and do the dirty work for her. So... Again, it kind of complicates, are they really in love? Is love that selfless? Is it more selfless to contain your curse and to let someone live a quasi-normal life as a mortal and not become a quote-unquote monster? Well, I think you just transitioned us into the second to last scene of the film. Which one? The pool scene. Oh, yeah. Holy shit, that pool scene. Yeah. I love that scene, and I think there is a happy interpretation of it, a sad interpretation of it, which is just kind of what you were getting at. Because Ellie, you know, when she realized when uh, Yoke comes to attack her and the neighbor upstairs is banging, like you're making yeah. too much noise. The jig is up. Yeah. She's like, I can't. I can't stay here. It's Gotta not go. safe anymore. Mm-hmm. I've lived long enough to know when my time is up in right, location. Right. And she leaves. She just gets in a cab and goes. Yeah. So you have a sense of that selflessness in that moment where she might be sad to leave him, but she will probably get over it and she will go figure something else out. And then her returning in that scene, because that scene is just, 
it's so brutal because you see Oscar smiling and he's happy kind of that maybe his relationship with Ellie could be done. And, and what she did was she gave him the emotional confidence to not be scared anymore. Mm -hmm. And he can go, you know, be a kid and maybe figure out his own way in life. And the film kind of posits these bullies and the older brother of one of the main bullies as the kind of like, no, you will never escape this. This will oppress you forever. Mm -hmm. And seemingly almost kill him. Like he was going to drown Oscar. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like I, I didn't know how far that was going to go because right. even when the other younger bullies that are Oscar's age started looking scared, yeah. that was like, oh, no. Well, they could have so easily made it look like an accident. Like the teacher went out to investigate that fire that they set yep. and a little boy drowned in the pool. Tragic. Again, I think this is just such an expertly shot scene and so well conceived that you're just watching it kind of from a reverse angle to Oscar. So it's showing Oscar's face underwater. Mm -hmm. When you see the body parts being dragged and thrown and like blood and you're just like, Oh my God, she's back. I'm mm -hmm. so happy. Yeah. And it's all in the oppressive silence of underwater. And it's, you know, speaks to some elements of gore, but doesn't show a whole lot, which is kind of the modus operandi of this film. Entirely. And I just thought, you know, it's such a singular, well conceived, well shot, well executed thing. And it kind of raises these emotions so Ellie had to come back or she was coming back and then was able to intervene and save Oscar's life so it's this notion that they truly do need each other mm -hmm. they truly do Oscar saved Ellie Ellie's gonna save Oscar yeah and they're bound together yeah they're on the run too many deaths now and whatever else their relationship is as problematic as tragic as lonely they've got each other's backs when they needed each other yes yeah. the bottom line in it yeah, and there's not a, like, you owe me. It's no. like, I'm here. It's I don't know if I've ever talked on this podcast about uh, the definition of love. Mm. Has that come up? I don't think so. I want right. to hear it. So I went to a Catholic high school, and as you get on in your high school career, you start really hating religion class, but it's a class in your schedule that you have to take. So I remember in grade 11, religion class was world religions, and we learned about other religions, and we went and visited a mosque and a temple and all this shit. And that was actually really cool. I learned a lot in that class. In grade 12, the teacher was like, I have an undergrad in psychology, and this is a psychology class, and we're going to learn psychology. And... At the beginning of every class, she would give us the definition of love, and we would recite it at the beginning of class to the point where now 34-year-old me can recite this from memory. The definition of love is to seek and foster the good of another in the context of a concrete situation. What? It just it spills out of me. I will never forget it as long as Wait, I live. Say it again. I need to purse this out. The definition of love is to seek and foster the good of another in the context of a concrete situation. And I've had some time to think about this, and it's pretty good. I actually think that as a definition for something as intangible as love, for something that's like, there's poetry about love, there's songs about love, but as a clinical psychological definition, I actually think that that one works. It encompasses many different dynamics of love, like familial love, romantic love, friendship, the love you have for a pet. It also denotes the verb of to love is to take care of something. You know, it's not all feelings. There is an actual tangible empirical element to it. Um, 
where was I going with this? I don't know. This is fucking deep, dude. Is, I, is it? So centrally, when I look at this film and like, do they really love each other? Are they manipulating each other? Are they using each other? Like, these are the questions that come up. Fundamentally, when I return to that definition, it fits. I don't even fully understand that definition, but I believe it's love. <laughs> it's a kind of love, and it's as good as you're going to get, man. Even in fairy tales, you can you can look at the great loves of cinema and literature, and you can find some element of manipulation and who's benefiting here and different power deferentials and dynamics, but fundamentally looking after each other and taking care of each other as if it were yourself and bringing that person into yourself such as if something happens to that person it happens to you that's it i'm glad that you brought up how amazing that final scene in the pool is because again i think the first time i saw the film that was one of the clearest things i remembered was that scene in the pool it was so artistic it was so quiet it was so subtle it said a lot without having to spell it out and i thought it was so egregious when i saw the remake let me in that that remake was a scene for scene remake of the original, including that fucking scene. You haven't seen the remake, have you? No, I refuse to. Good. I know that's not good of no, me no, no. as a In this person, case, no, 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 no. Can't. Like I said, it is a scene for scene remake with a couple of glaring omissions. And I'll talk about those in a second. But even the fact that, I mean... I don't know, if you're watching the film the way I do, I watched it with subtitles, and then I watched it again dubbed later on. Subtitles are better, but you're translating Swedish to English. There are bound to be some cultural nuances that aren't really tapped upon in the translation. The translation's a little bit jankety. The conversation and vernacular doesn't flow quite the same as the way it would in English. And that's fine. That's something that you come to expect in foreign films that are translated into another language. But the remake cribbed the translated dialogue almost word for word where you've got, you know, an American girl, an American guy saying stuff to each other that doesn't sound normal at all. Well, I mean, this was kind of Chloe Grace Moretz's first offense because uh, I believe Let Me In came out in 2010. And then she was, of course, Carrie in the Carrie remake, which woof. Well, and this was after she was hot on the heels of Kick-Ass and yep. Kick-Ass 2, where she played a little girl with such pluck and such spirit. So they cast her in this. And from what I understand, the director really kind of gave her carte blanche to be like, you know what? We're not going to show that castration. So why don't you, Chloe, in all of your 12-year-old wisdom, come up with the backstory for your own character? Yeah, we went over a lot of stuff. It was, it was really cool because Matt, he actually gave me a diary. And, you know, he was like, you know, writing it as Abby, which is really cool. And, you know, he did the same with Cody. And it really helped us get into our character, you know, because you got to research their background. And, you know, they don't have last names in the movie, but, you, you know, you come up with last names and, and backgrounds and, and boyfriends and dads and mothers and brothers and sisters and who was her maker and all this, all this really cool stuff that really, really gets you into it. What the flying fuck? Who thought that was a good idea? And I will say this as someone who recently had to clean out their childhood bedroom so their parents could move. The shit that I wrote when I was 12 should never be behind a multi-million dollar motion picture. No. 
No, and especially since, I mean, we're talking about that castration scene, how it matters and it doesn't matter at the same time. But it's one of those complexities that makes the film what it is. And so to take that out of the film and then do a scene-by-scene replay of it in all other respects is just so incredibly ill-advised and offensive to me. It's my most loathed remake of all time. Yeah, I, again, I dabbled with the idea of watching it, and I just, watching the original, I was just like, I can't, I need this film to be what it is to me. I can't struggle through a kind of awkward remake, which comes like two years after it, as from what I understand, very scene for scene. Again, as Andrea was just saying, glaring omissions, I just... I don't want to see that. No. I don't want to see that. If it'd been some kind of radical changes to it, if they'd really, you know, put something on its head, then sure, I would check it out for interest's sake. But I, I don't think I have any reason to yeah. see it. No. And the original filmmaker of Let the Right One In, Thomas Alfredson, was pretty straightforward in that he did not approve of the idea of this remake. To him, it was a fundamentally Swedish story, and it was set in Sweden, and it was shot in Sweden, and it's based on a book that was a big hit in Sweden. So it was important to him that this text be situated where it was. He wasn't down with the remake. He refused to watch it. So should you. (laughs) But of course, if you love it, that's cool. No. Okay. Not this time. Then there is another chapter to the story of Let the Right One In, which is a theatrical version. And I mean, actual theater. Your favorite. <laughs> My favorite. Because I was finished... it a musical? Your extra special favorite? Oh, fuck no. Hmm. I don't think it was. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But the joke in that is that I literally finished my master's degree in theater and was like, oh, my God, I hate theater. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I just want to talk about what I actually love, which is film. Point being, I was a little surprised to stumble across the fact that the National Theater of Scotland had done a play of Let the Right One In. Scotland. Scotland. So it was set in Scotland. Yeah. Just traded in the Nordic sweaters for kilts. Exactly. And some like haggis. So we'll link to maybe the trailer for the theater version uh, in the show notes in case you're curious and want to check it out. And I did watch a few things about it. And I read a few reviews of it. It did play in Scotland. It played in the UK. And then it went to Off-Broadway in New York. And, you know, there was a kind of like... Some people really liked it, seemed to be more accepted in the UK with better reviews. It was a bit more dismissed from the New York reviews I read. But a lot of people, it certainly theater critics, kind of stuck onto the fact that it was very, very gory, mm. that the violence was really overt. And that's, you know, you don't often see that in theater unless you're dealing with like a Sarah Kane play or something like that. But even then, it's, it's very, um, metaphorical violence and suggested violence. So, and I have to say from the, from the trailers and the clips that I watch, uh, this play utilizes one of my least favorite things about theater. And I got a lot of those these days. 20 or 30 something year old actors playing children. Ah. It is awkward. It is mannered. <laughs> it is weird. It's like, I don't know what's like the next valley over from the uncanny valley, but it's like the worst valley. It's so awkward and unwatchable and like uncharming. Mm. It's just adults pretending to be kids. So you lose the kind of innate awkward intimacy that this film creates. So 
I don't know. I definitely wouldn't go see it, but I think it speaks to let the right ones in prominence as a cultural artifact mm. that a theater company would kind of hitch its wagon yeah. to this piece of culture and say, you know what? We know there's a movie that you can easily access. Why what? not pay $40 or 40 pounds and come see a play about it? Granted, here in Toronto, I just saw um, one of the kind of major commercial theaters was doing a production of North by Northwest. Oh, yeah. So, you know, theater, okay. it's so vital. Yeah. We we need it now more than ever in case you find iTunes too cheap. <laughs> but that's it. That's, that's let the right one in from our vantage point. I think looking at it as I kind of leave this snow-ridden film – what I think about it is that the novel is obviously such an important text to the film and adds so much to the understanding of the questions we have in the film. But the answers that the book gives are not the answers that I arrive at. Mm. And for me, as a film critic, as a film fan, it's really interesting for me to separate those two and understand that, sure, there is a several-page explanation of who Hoken is, you know, the genital castration, all of this stuff, but that's not what I take away from the film. No. Uh, no the film has so many ambiguities, and it's fun to play in those ambiguities, because like I said, you can get a different reading every time you watched it. I enjoyed doing research and getting that backdrop on the book, but if there were fan fiction out there who was like, how about this? And it was interesting and speculative, sure. Like, there are so many different reads you can have on this film, which is why I'm really eager to hear from you guys about this. I know our listeners were very excited to hear that we were going to talk about this, and I think it's for that very same reason. So please do write in and let us know. And mainly, we just want to thank you guys for joining us for another year. It's five years. Five years. It's been crazy. It's been amazing. This was kind of our biggest year yet. It really was. Um, we have such a blast doing this podcast. We found um, so many supporters all over multiple countries who listen to us and engage with us. And that is really important to us. And that's what keeps us going. And again, we're kind of planning through 2018 what that's going to look like. Uh, in January, we're still planning on doing our assessment episode. Yeah, we do our assessment episode in January. We used to do one where we read mail and we answered it. And we don't do that anymore because we get way too much mail. But... What we do now is we just kind of have some fun. We came up with like a newlywed game last year, which I thought was really fun. And and I was thinking that maybe we could open that up to you. Maybe that could be your homework this time. Instead of a film to watch, why don't you come up with some uh, some questions that we could ask each other and get horribly wrong and uh, realize that we don't know each other nearly as well as we think we do. Yeah. So comment with those um, on the Facebook post, the Twitter post. Uh, you can write into us at info at faculty of horror. Uh, I'll try to amalgamate all of those by the beginning of January 2018 so we can put it together. And we'll also probably do a rundown of our favorite films of 2017. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and oh, wait, was there I, actually Andrea? Mm. I think, did we record an extra episode? I don't know. I don't know. Did we? We might have. I don't know. Maybe just I don't know. Check your uh, check your podcast feeds for the yeah, next couple weeks. Yeah, just keep an eye on that, just in know. case. I don't know, but we got to get to those dinner reservations, right? Ooh, good idea. Yeah, you you book those, right? You bet. 
So yeah, again, this is a weird time of year. Maybe you're like me and you're really into the holidays and getting to force people to spend time with you. Or maybe you're like me and you loathe your family and all the emotional baggage that comes with that. So you hide in your couch on the holidays. But whatever you're doing, thank you for taking the time to listen to us. Thank you for the support. It's been really amazing. And we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep bringing it in 2018. And um, yeah, happy holidays, guys. Be safe. Have fun. Take care of yourselves. Do what you need to do. And until next year, office hours are closed. Say, 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 say